concern amongst livestock producers around biosecurity with the current foot and mouth disease outbreak in Indonesia, including barley, is very significant. And foot and mouth disease, as you may know, is caused by a highly contagious virus that survives in living tissue and in the breath, saliva, urine, contaminated materials and the environment for several months under the right conditions. So an incursion into Australia would stop animal industries and their exports in their tracks as the emergency animal disease plan, the Ausvet plan, would swing into gear with traceability of stock and animal products such as wool, crucial to the success of identification, containment and the eradication before industries could actually start trading again. So what does it all mean? What is protecting us? And what can we do as individuals? Let's find out. Welcome to The Yarn. It's a podcast for the wool industry. I'm Marius Cumming. So Andrew Henderson was suggested to me by Andrew Whitelaw of Thomas Elders Markets to speak about the issue. Andrew Henderson is the chair of the Safe Meat Advisory Group and through Ag Secure provides livestock industries with a strong focus on biosecurity, traceability and integrity systems. Uh, we find ourselves in a situation where FND is as close as it's been in, in over 30 years to our northern border. And we know how porous our northern border is with a lot of natural pathways uh, for various different diseases, <clears throat> movements of passengers and people uh, and animals um, across our northern border. So certainly we've been watching and the government and other stakeholders have been monitoring the progress of foot and mouth disease down through Indonesia. Hit, hitting barley certainly changes the game now simply because the of the, um, of the flow of people and passengers uh, from a tourism perspective and with international borders opening up and so on, uh, really means that our systems at the border uh, in terms of our bilateral cooperation with Indonesia now really steps up a notch, um, absolutely. The last time that FMD was this close, uh, well, was, was um, in Indonesia, was back in the 80s. And we know that we live in a very different world uh, now to, to, to back then. Um, Australia was able to successfully cooperate with Indonesia at that time to, to uh, eradicate FMD and, and, and sort of stop the threat before it got to us, which was fantastic. But, you know, obviously now there's um, uh, dramatically increased passenger movements, um, much larger tourism industry than there was back then and, and, and compounded by the fact that we've got an increasingly volatile international trade environment, which means a lot of our trade pathways have been upended uh, and, and that also increases or makes uh, it more difficult for our biosecurity intelligence um, uh, capacity in terms of being able to identify areas of high risk and, and certainly changes the dynamic in that regard. So, yeah, things things are very real uh, and um, it's only going to get uh, more so uh, as, as we move forward over the coming weeks and months. So... Those that can remember the foot and mouth disease outbreak in the United Kingdom will remember just how devastating it was over there. And uh, a lot of that had to do with the lack of traceability. The the, the sort of lifelong effects that had on people uh, were, were really significant. So um, what, what is the scenario here? I mean, is it a case of making sure everyone from Indonesia goes through a foot bath at airports? Uh, uh, you know, what's protecting us? Well, there's, there's, there's what they call the biosecurity continuum. Now, tra traceability is a part of a much broader system um, that, which all works together to, you know, to ensure that we're as protected as we possibly can be when it comes to these types of threats. And, you know, FMD and, and lumpy skin disease 
they're just two of a myriad of different things that our biosecurity system protects this country from um, on a day-to-day basis. So you've got all of your in-country activities. So the things that are happening overseas um, uh, in terms of uh, your your pre-departure processes, uh, all those cards that passengers have to fill out and declarations that they have to make. And, uh, but of course, passengers are only just one part of that system. There's a lot of uh, work that goes into in-country surveillance and intelligence monitoring of trade pathways, right down to things as very basic as making sure that containers um, are clean and, and free from bugs and bees. And, you know, we've got a Verolmite incursion that started at the port of Newcastle just the other week. And is an example of, um, you know, how, you know, how these things, how easily these, these types of incursions can come in. And then you've got your border at border activities uh, which you know involve uh, passengers being screened you know those cards that you fill out being scrutinized and uh, people identified from high with high risk pathways of which Bali for example and Indonesia more broadly um, is absolutely well and truly one uh, now and in terms of making sure that they're adhering with all of those requirements and the the surveillance and intervention um, at the border dramatically increases but then you've also got a whole system that sits in behind that at a domestic level, which is in place and designed to ensure that we're we're able to be prepared for and respond to um, any likely incursion of these types of things. So we know that it's, it's impossible to keep things like virolmite out, caffra beetle, lumpy skin disease, all of that sort of stuff, because a lot of this stuff can come into the country on natural pathways where we have no control. So we have to have systems and structures in place. Um, so you've got things like the AusVet plan, uh, which is where industry and governments have agreed on um, what the response to a foot and mouth de- uh, disease outbreak looks like. And a lot of that work is underpinned by a traceability system, in this case, the National Livestock Identification System, so NLIS, in conjunction with your other integrity programs that people carry out on farm on a day-to-day basis with you, you know, surveilling and monitoring your livestock and their health and all of that type of stuff, which is specifically designed to, if there is an, an incursion, uh, to be able to track and trace animals and isolate that incursion as quickly as possible. Because we know that the sooner that you, you are able to identify an incursion, track the animals, uh, find out where, uh, which other animals that they might have been in contact with, draw a line around that particular incursion and contain it. Then, and the quicker you can do that, the 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 more you mitigate uh, the impact of that of that um, of that disease, and the sooner you'll be able to recover from the implications. So, there's a couple of steps there. There's you know the the obvious on ground implication of the impact of the disease itself, and foot and mouth disease. Uh, but then there's also the trade implications and significantly for the country, they're the ones uh, that have the impact and mean that the impact is going to be felt or would be felt by absolutely everybody in the supply chain. Because if we get an incursion in Perth, <laughs> we're going to feel that on the East Coast because our export market access will stop uh, overnight, FMD being a notifiable disease. And so we have to um, demonstrate freedom from FA, uh, FMD um, for for a period of time before we would be considered as being as a country being free from FMD, and then once you've been considered to be free from FMD by the World Organization for Animal Health, um, it's only then that your trading partners are going to start to scrutinise your system and and think about letting you back in, and that process can take a long period of time. So the Ausvet plan is our reaction, and that is underpinned by the NLIS. So just take us through a possible scenario, Andrew, that. Um, 
you sort of referred to it there. How mm. uh, how do we react if, uh, heaven forbid, FMD does land on our shores? So, effectively, if, if there's a if there's a detection, um, let's just use a scenario of the, the sentinel herd in Bamaga in, in Cape York, for example, it's a likely um, potential uh, pathway given the proximity to uh, PNG and then also up into Indonesia. If there's a detection in the sentinel herd, FMD gets picked up up there, then um, you know that 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 herd is isolated. Uh, those animals, infected animals, would likely have to be destroyed. Um, and then you'd go through a period of time where you'd have to continue to uh, monitor and surveil um, animals within that region uh, and that, that um, infected area to ensure that they're free from that disease. And once they've been um, free for a period of time, depending on whether vaccina a vaccination program is used or not, uh, three or six months, uh, because vaccines will continue to sort of present in the monitoring, so it means you've got to sort of have gone through a longer process of being deemed to be free from when the last animal was destroyed. Uh, then, uh, then you can apply for a declaration of freedom from foot and mouth disease with your World Organization for Animal Health. Um, once that process has been hopefully agreed to, then you begin the process of being able to regain your market access. But as soon as you've incurred that disease, then you, you've had to make that declaration to your trading partners um, that that that's been the case and our export market access effectively stops to, to uh, basically the bulk of our major markets. Uh, and so, you know, the implications of that, not only for the, the red meat and livestock sector, uh, but for um, obviously other sectors like wool, for example, uh, which is, uh, you know, also impacted by foot and mouth disease and dairy uh, are pretty stark as well. So, yes, I mean, look, we, we've seen the vision of, of cattle in Indonesia as part of this, but as we know from the UK, this is uh, uh, a disease that very much affects sheep. We've seen, mm -hmm. uh, you know, images of uh, mass slaughterings of uh, mobs and herds, uh, just devastating. So uh, talk us through the implications specifically for wool, given that uh, I suppose parts of the wool industry would think we're a little bit sort of uh, quarantined this given um uh, that that it seems so far away but actually it isn't yeah yeah well look i should mention too you know the moment that there's been an incursion they engage the national livestock standstill so everything stops now that includes wool anything that's a vector for foot and mouth disease literally stops uh so you know fr from the wool industry's perspective not only do you have if depending on how widespread the outbreak is and this is where your, your traceability system comes into play um obviously sheep being uh, quite numerable around the countryside um, particularly in the context of sale yards and so on. So, you know, sometimes a, a disease like this could be in your country, you know, for a week or weeks um, before it's necessarily picked up. If that's the case, given the way livestock move around the country, they can interact with many other livestock and that's how the thing spreads. You know, think, think about COVID and how uh, it, it gets away on us very, very quickly um, through human interaction. Same deal with livestock given how much they move around the country. Um, so, and that's that's the purpose of a national livestock standstill. They need to hit pause as soon as they understand that that outbreak has occurred in order to be able to get a handle on it as quickly as possible. Wool is not immune from that being an FMD uh, vector itself. And so wool market access, wool export, everything stops and it stops for as long as it needs to stop until uh, the determination has been made by officials that the the outbreak is, is um, uh, effectively contained and so the impact on the wool industry and the broader wool supply chain is as 
is as um, profound as it would be for the livestock uh, supply chain. So, right, the OSVET plan, as you said, is underpinned by the National Livestock Identification System, or NLIS. So in cattle, that is uh, electronic tagging and therefore individual tagging. But in uh, every state of Australia except Victoria, it is mob-based. Uh, mm. is, there, is there a significance to that? Uh, yeah, look, it's, um, yeah, absolutely is the short answer. I and mean, when I say um, uh, the OSVET plan is, is, is sorry, the NLIS is, is a significant um, mechanism that, you know, is utilised by the OSVET plan to respond to, um, you know, emergency animal disease incidents. So, you know, the, the core premise is how quickly and how effectively you're able to trace your animals. So the more accurately you're able to do that, the quicker you are able to isolate where the incursion took place, but also the more accurately you're able to identify uh, how many animals the infected animal interacted with as it travelled through the supply chain. Now, if you're talking a paper mob-based or visual identification uh, system, it's vastly less accurate by virtue of the fact that, A, it's paper-based. For starters, there's always the opportunity for um, a human error, um, particularly, you know, when it comes to, say, filling out the the, the pick numbers uh, on your NBD uh, that that uh, that may uh, consist or may comprise in a mob of sheep. And in a lot of cases, we know that uh, producers, you know, in their best endeavours to make sure that they've captured all pick numbers that could possibly in that uh, be in that mob of sheep that have been transported from A to B, um, sometimes inadvertently uh, might put, put pick numbers that they think could be in the mob that might not actually be in the mob. And so what that means, then you've broadened the circle of, of uh, containment because you've identified more geographical areas that have to be then um, drilled down into to identify whether or not there's uh, the outbreak has spread to that location. And then um, as those sheep move through the supply chain, um, the cohorts that they interact with, other mobs, just get big really quickly. So it puts a lot of pressure on your contact tracers, if you will, the people that are responsible for, um, you know, tracking and tracing those animals back through the supply chain where they've been, same way that COVID contract tracers have, have been working or a similar way. It means that they, they go from dealing with hundreds to thousands to hundreds of thousands of animals really, really quickly. And, and it just completely blows out. By comparison, in, in an electronic system, you are vastly more accurately able to identify much more quickly and with less resources um, where those sheep not only came from, uh, but who they interacted with along the supply chain. And that gives you a much greater capacity to be able to more quickly isolate and you know, identify those cohorts that they interacted with and, and isolate them. So there's, there's certainly a big difference between the two systems. Um, and for a range of reasons, the fact that there's that inconsistency across the country and that we trade as a nation uh, makes it quite problematic uh, when we've got different approaches in different states to how we track and trace livestock, particularly given how porous our state borders are. Because when it comes to, you know, um, despite a national livestock standstill, this is not a scenario where, you know, where you can necessarily um, contain on a border basis, the movement of animals um, very effectively given, uh, just given the nature of how animals interact through different um, geographical areas and properties. So uh, yes, it's a tricky one, that's for sure. Looking back on the foot and mouth disease outbreak in the UK, which must have been 20 years ago now, but I mean, mm. that was that was uh, very much um, made a lot worse due to the fact that their traceability was understand so poor and so, 
the um, the destruction of, of, of flocks was uh, was widespread because the net had to be thrown so wide. And yes, I think yep. a lot of people will will remember the imagery of those massive pits. Uh, it was uh, soul destroying for people who were were involved. Um, so that that you know that I suppose is a is a message to why we have an NLIS. Um, yes. Yep. So Andrew, what is your what is your message to to sheep producers with this, and particularly wool growers? So. We need to reframe how we view systems like the NLIS. They're not just an, a regulatory imposition on your business that's a cost that you don't see any benefit from. The big argument that we make is that we have been appreciating the value of livestock traceability and the National Livestock Traceability System for decades now in terms of what it does in, in facilitating mark, trade and market access. A lot of our trading partners will not accept our product um, unless it is underpinned by a traceability system that can give them confidence that we are able to track and trace in the provenance of our animals and so on um, for a range of different reasons. So that's number one. Our export, we export, you know, particularly in wool, wool ex, you know, exports account for 98% or that somewhere thereabouts, um, uh, you know, of, of the clip goes overseas straight off the bat. Uh, in livestock, meat and livestock, we're exporting 70, over 70%, depending on the year-on-year -year average of, of, of our turnoff. So that means that the value of these commodities is fundamentally underpinned by export market access. Now, wool's a slightly different story uh, because it is not, hasn't been uh, to date subject to the same uh, trade protocols as what meat and livestock is, you know, um, given that they've got a food safety element associated with them. But regardless, that's still underpinning the base value of your, your animal that's producing that wool, which will at some point in its life enter the food supply chain, meat export supply chain. So revaluing how producers think about traceability is, is really important because until you do that, you just think, oh, well, this is just this system. They're trying to make me put a more expensive tag in their ear. No one's, no one's getting out of bed in the morning trying to regulate producers any more than is necessary. <laughs> um, we're, we're trying to make sure that we've got a system that's functional and effective and has the capacity to be able to ensure that we're prepared and able to respond to a significant outbreak like foot and mouth disease. Because as you as you pointed out before, the quicker you can track and trace an outbreak and contain it, the less animals have to be destroyed. The less animals have to be destroyed means uh, we can respond and bounce back more quickly. Um, the quicker we can contain that outbreak, not only the less animals that have to be destroyed, but the quicker we can demonstrate that we're free from that disease and regain our market access and continue to trade. Because if we just if we just let people resonate on, on the fact that if you can't trade, we can't export our product, what does that do to the supply chain? Even for a month, but we know that it would be at least three months uh, we would be out of the market um, from, when we, from when we were able to demonstrate that the last animal uh, that, that um, had the disease was destroyed. So it, it might take us six months to, to be able to do that in the event of an incursion. And then we've got to prove to our trading partners that we're free from that disease and they can have confidence in our systems. If they don't have confidence in our systems, they will not let us back in. That's just a fact. So if we resonate on the, if we think about the fact that we're not going to trade, so what does that do to our business? It's going gonna, it's gonna to harm us in a way that we've never known before. And so there's every reason for us to reframe our concept of traceability and think about what we can do on an individual basis to try and make that system more functional. Now, the point we've made, there's been review after review after review since uh, the FMD outbreak in the UK into Australia's livestock traceability systems 
uh, that have continually said that we need to improve livestock traceability across the board, but particularly for uh, sheep and goat. Wool growers only really have to to see what happens in South Africa that uh, has foot and mouth disease outbreaks uh, every now and then, and, and yeah. uh, their their trade just stops absolutely dead. So I suppose the the key question, Andrew, is look how uh, how confident are you that we can actually keep it out? Look, it, that's a really tough, tough one because at the end of the day, there's so many different variables at play, including people's individual responsibility that are travelling to an infected area <laughs> to do the right thing. You know, um, we're relying on many, many different people to to ensure that when they go to Bali for a holiday over this period of time, they're not interacting with livestock, that they're making sure they take the appropriate precautions. Now, that that um, you know. That's incumbent also on our on our border officials and and our biosecurity officials to be making sure that those messages are delivered. We have one of the world's best and most stringent biosecurity systems, and and we can have a lot of confidence in that. Um, we're probably seconded only by New Zealand. They they're pretty they're pretty good themselves in making sure they keep out uh, the nasties. Um, uh, but the reality is, we have to be prepared for uh, the likelihood that this will happen. We simply cannot say, well, you know, a foot bath at the border or stopping passenger movements, um, you know, is, is going to save us. Um, we have to make sure that the systems and structures that we have, you know, our insurance policies, for example, are up to scratch because if and when it gets over the border, we have to be able to respond as quickly and effectively as possible. Now, if it's not a traveller coming back from Bali, it could be, um, you know, it could be the movement of animals coming over, you know, through Boigu Island or Badu, you know, to our north through PNG, for example, if the thing spreads that far. There are, there are many different ways it can come in. So we can have a lot of confidence in our systems and there are a lot of really competent expert people who are who are really um, hitting their straps now, making sure that we're doing everything we possibly can, both in country on a bilateral level between Indonesia and ourselves and at the border in terms of stepping up and, and increasing that level of vigilance passenger flights coming and going from those um, high-risk areas. But we have a responsibility on the ground and domestic level to make sure that we are as prepared uh, and have the systems and structures in place that are as effective as they possibly need to do. Producers have a significant role in that because producers influence policy at a state-by-state -state level. And we live in a federated system where these, these systems and programs are, are governed by both states and the Commonwealth. Um, so there's a bit in it for everybody uh, in terms of the heavy lifting involved. Um, and, uh, you know, individual traceability uh, and electronic identification of animals and ensuring that producers engage with the biosecurity and integrity system meaningfully and effectively is, um, is just, a, you know, a small price to pay. So not to uh, trivialise this, but, I mean, it is, a, it is an important question, Andrew. Uh, if sheep producers have family members or are heading to, say, Bali, for a holiday, what is the best way to make sure that they do not bring foot and mouth disease back? Well, uh, you know, it's, it would be. I mean, the critical thing is don't like. There's a lot of there's a lot of livestock that uh, that, that hang around. You know, the, the built up metropolitan areas in that region. People need to just be really vigilant. Stay away from livestock. Stay away from high risk areas. Anywhere where there's livestock have been congregating. Um, don't go and pack cattle that are quiet in the street, all of that type of thing. Uh, and then when you're coming back through, you know, passengers need to take the advice of officials at the border, both in country, in Bali, but also when they're coming back through, if there's anything that they have on their person, 
um, you know, footwear, all of that type of stuff, either get rid of it or make sure it's been appropriately cleaned. But the, the, the critical part is there is the provision of advice both in country and at the border on your return home uh, that tells people exactly what they need to do and how to be vigilant. And it's really important that, you know, um, individuals follow that advice um, and be smart because there's, the, you know, there's a whole regional economy and ultimately the Australian economy uh, relies on 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 this on people being vigilant and, and taking some responsibility uh, to make sure that this thing uh, you know stays away from us. But it is a highly transmissible disease, as I understand it. Yeah, it it sure is, absolutely. Um, but you know, if the if the necessary precautions are taken, as I as I mentioned, following that advice, that's that's just as I said, Marius, one one pathway is passengers. We know that you know how those those um, those risks can be mitigated. Um, in that passenger pathway, but we need to also remember that there's, you know, um, male pathways and all of that type of stuff that, that present a risk as well. But all of that advice is there. It's, it's dirty shoes. It's not bringing back any meat or animal, pro, you know, products uh, with you over the border. Um, it's it's don't even engage with <laughs> with livestock wherever you can possibly help it. Um, I wouldn't, you know, dealing with cattle and sheep and goats and all that sort of stuff in my regular day-to-day life, I'd be the last thing I'd want to be doing is going to Bali and <laughs> having anything to do with a with a cow. I'd rather go and sit on the beach. But um but uh but there's some really basic things that people can do to to mitigate the risk. Andrew, for now, thank you very much for for joining us. It's uh, a really serious issue and you've communicated it uh, really well. So very much appreciate your time. Thanks, Morris. Um, anytime. Happy to have a chat. And uh, yeah, look, appreciate everybody's vigilance and uh, everybody's commitment to making sure that the, you know, that the the sheep uh, traceability system, um, and by virtue of that, um, any systems associated with wool um, are as effective and robust as they need to be uh, to uh, you know to to be prepared and respond. Andrew Henderson, Chair of the Safe Meat Advisory Group, but from an Australian wool innovation perspective. The company holds financial reserves specifically for any exotic disease outbreak to assist the response and traceability, which continues to be a major focus at the company. So protecting the Australian wool pipeline post-farm gate emergency animal disease preparedness was a six-point strategy developed by AWI in conjunction with the Wool Industries Australia Emergency Animal Disease Working Group some years ago. So the main goal of the strategy is to ensure that in the event of an exotic disease outbreak, the normal business of the wool industry would be resumed as rapidly as possible. You can search for this particular strategy in the points at wool.com. But importantly, keep up to date with the latest news via agriculture.gov.au. Follow Wool Innovation on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. But for now, from me, Murray's coming. Thanks for having a yarn with us. <laughs>